Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about personal work and compassionate teaching. I'm joined today by Lucinda Hitchcock. Lucinda is a book designer, typographer, and the head of RISD's graphic design department. She's worked on books for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Tufts University, and the RISD Museum, and her current research involves narrative, place, and the shape of language. This conversation happened last month, right as Lucy was coming off of a sabbatical. And so it was this kind of interesting intersection for her as she was re-engaging with her work again. We talk about the sabbatical and the work and writing that she did during that time away. But we also talk about her background in literature and writing and how design incorporates all of her interests. We talk about teaching and what it means to be a compassionate teacher and how the graphic design program at RISD is set up to foster inquiry both of its faculty and of the students. This is one of those conversations that I just find really inspiring and encouraging and hopeful even. I hope you leave it as inspired as I was was during. I think it's a really great conversation. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind the scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships. So if you would like to help with the ongoing production of the podcast, I hope you consider joining. Thank you for listening and enjoy this conversation with Lucy. Cinda Hitchcock. I reread the essay that you wrote in the Art of Critical Making book, the book that RISD put out yes. a couple of years ago now. But you have this essay in there, Graphic design storytelling and the making of meaning, which I had read, I, I got the book when the book came out, and I, I had read it, but I reread it again yesterday to prepare for this. And there were two things in that essay that struck me that I kind of want to, I, I hate to begin this conversation by reading back something that you wrote. Um, but there were two pieces there that I thought were really interesting that I think could set up where I imagine this conversation going. And the first one is that you say, that graphic designers are a type of cultural curators and that graphic design is kind of the perfect profession for people who are interested in the convergence of visual form, concept, and story. And I really like both of those ideas. And the reason I want to start with that is because you originally studied English with a minor in photography and then also work taking classes in anthropology. And what struck me is it seems like that convergence of visual form, concept, and story was there for you from the beginning. Uh, and so I'm kind of interested in what you were interested in back when you were an undergrad studying all of these things. Um, how did you kind of fall into those? What were you excited about and wanting to do? Well, I, I commend you for sort of piecing, being able to piece that together because you're actually <laughs> stating it more clearly than I've ever sort of recognized. Mm. Um, you know, the, the beauty of being in college at the time that I was in college, which was in the 80s, and being at a small liberal arts college in Ohio is that we were sort of in a very privileged place of doing what um, was expected of us in a particular middle class kind of way. And coming to a place like Kenyon, um, I had always known really since the earliest that I could remember ever being asked what I wanted to be 
I always knew I wanted to be a teacher and I hmm. sort of always knew I wanted to be a professor that I didn't want to work with little kids, but that I wanted <laughs> to work with older kids. And I always thought I was going to be an English professor because my entire family are voracious readers. And I think hmm. books were just our comfortable zones. I mean, my mother was literally like one of those mothers who would sit by the fire and read to us um, you know, yeah. Christmas Eve and stuff like that. Like just super, um, super waspy, super middle-class privilege lots and lots of books in the house. And my father was a diplomat. And so the, uh, the sort of the mm. question of what the world was all about was always sort of right in front of us. We were living in Japan. I was born in Japan and we were mm. living in, they lived in Vietnam before that. Um, we lived in Israel and traveled all around the Middle East. Oh, wow. And so, you know, we, just, we had just seen the world sort of right in front of us and didn't think of it as something kind of exotic. It was just the places that we lived. <laughs> college you know studying anthropology I just you know in those days anthropology was also very different from how it is today um it just was another way to continue the conversation about what's going on in the world that seemed supernatural I was an English major which also was kind of just in my DNA and then photography was I think we might have even had a requirement to try one art form as freshmen or something I'm not oh cool interesting yeah, I bought an old Nikromat, one of these massive 20 pound cameras from, mm -hmm. in fact, I think an anthropology teacher who had carried it to Tibet and climbed mountains with it and stuff. And she handed me this old banged up thing and said, here, you should try this. And really, that was kind of the gateway to starting to think about, about not just images, but I think my first teacher, I'm going to say his name because I still think of him, Gregory Spade, who taught at mm -hmm. Kenyon in the art department, taught me how to frame. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't draw my way out of a paper bag. I had to take color theory classes. <laughs> but once I got to framing and cropping, my world just like exploded. That was something fantastic. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the story of how we get from, from, you know, entering college to doing that stuff. Did you see, I, I mean, just based on that, I, I have like 50 other questions that I could ask you. Um, uh, specifically about this kind of early idea of wanting to be a professor. But before we get to that, I, I'm curious, you know, you're, you, you, you think you're going to be an English professor, you're studying English, but you're also taking photography classes, you're taking anthropology classes. Did that feel, did that feel like a bunch of different things like on paper that looks almost chaotic? Did it feel like those were all connected to you when you were doing all of that? Um, I think they were probably pretty disconnected at that time. I don't okay. think any of us in college are sophisticated enough to see <laughs> they were all part of something. Yeah. But I think the thing that they were all part of was just growing up and being a learner. And I think mm. that it's the, it's the space of learning that I came to really embody and honor and cherish while I was in college. And then I did grad school twice. So I'm clearly somebody who loves, who loves to learn, but also, um, in my teaching now, I feel like I want to replicate that. I kind of sometimes want to remind students that that the incredible fortune of being in a four-year college, even for yeah. transfers who are doing it in two or two and a half years, yeah. is time to learn and time to grow. And it doesn't always have to lean you directly into you know an office chair somewhere, which of course is a reality we all have to face. But it's okay to take a beat and say, I know I'm going to get a job out of this. But right. right now I want to grow and I want to stretch and I want to think. And this is a cherished, cherished time that 
we sometimes rush through too quickly. So I do think while I was I knew that this was a precious time. I I want to talk more about that. I have one other question just to kind of close this thread. Yeah. Um, so, and, and you had mentioned that you, you went to grad school twice. And so your first time you went to Columbia, uh, continuing to study literature, and then you went to Yale for MFA in graphic design. Uh, and I don't mean to kind of gloss over your entire background or all of that in between, but... Um, to go back to the that kind of statement in, in the essay about graphic design being perfect for people interested in visual form, concept, and story, when did you realize that there was this thing called graphic design that connected all of these things that you were interested in, or that that might be a way to kind of bring all of this together in some way? Yeah. Um, probably teaching, you know, honestly, mm-hmm. when I when I was... First out of grad school, the first time, um, publishing and books seemed a really natural place to end up. Mm-hmm. And so when I was doing book design and doing book editing, in fact, I was an editor before I was doing any design, um, mm. I didn't I had never even heard of the term graphic design. And I was literally sharing an office with Alvin Eisenman's daughter. And, and she was a little older than me, and she was married to the guy I was working for, David Godine. And I still had never heard the term graphic design. Hmm. And then literally for you know really stupid reasons i think some i had a boyfriend who was in new york and i wanted to be closer to new york i was living in boston and i thought huh maybe i should go to school again in new york and then it, sarah walked in one day and just said you know my dad has this great program at yale that you might consider and it was really that casual hmm. um, she said there's a program a master's program in graphic design and and i was literally working as a designer and an editor in a publishing company and i hadn't heard the term graphic design and, and I think it's because we were so focused on the production of books in a very specific way. Right. We hadn't, we hadn't unpacked. I had never even been sort of told that you could unpack this whole sort of bigger concept that tied in uh, communication and communication arts and so on and so forth. And this is, again, late, uh, late 80s, early 90s, I guess. Um, and... So when I applied to Yale, the, the, the feeling was like I would never get in. <laughs> she had taken over. She'd been there for a few years. Um, I certainly thought I didn't even have this connection to Alvin Eisenman anymore, so that wasn't going to help me. But it turns out she was trying to build a cohort of people who were literate and who were thoughtful. And so when I applied, I got accepted, I think, because of the essay I wrote. Mm. And then what, it wasn't what did you write about? I, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> okay. The thing was that I... I hadn't heard the phrase or I hadn't brought together all of these ideas, these notions of like cultural curation and stuff like that until I was all through grad school and, and in the space of teaching and, and then working with my colleagues. And honestly, that's where, you know, in my mid to late thirties that my sort of vocabulary around design and design education started to build. It certainly wasn't while I was a student. Mm-hmm. Um, what I wrote about in my essay to get into Yale, I still remember so clearly it was so naive and yet, Funnily enough, it's still a big problem in my mind. Mm. I wrote about the distinct separation between editorial um, thought, the verbal and and sort of academic side of the editorial mind, and the production side of things, especially in the book universe, because that's where I was deeply right. It's almost a kind of Cartesian separation that was sort of declared many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that like mm-hmm. thinking in words... The wordsmithing had a kind of a privileged thought over here and then carving it, making it, making it visible had this other space over here that was somehow, right. you know, um, diminutive or demoted. 
Um, and I was making this big declaration that we needed to figure out how to bring these two things together and that there was some form or some place or some platform that hadn't yet been invented where these, th- these, these two sides of the coin kind of came together in an equal way. That was my essay. You just kind of glossed over that you were editing books, but then you also started designing the books also. Yeah. How did that happen? Was that, I'll admit, I don't know much about the publishing industry, yeah. how that how it worked at that time. Was that common or how did you kind of fall into both editing and designing the books? It was very uncommon. And okay. so when I first graduated from Columbia, after a really hilarious summer of teaching summer school somewhere in New York in a private school that's now defunct, I got a job at a big publishing company, Franklin Watts, where they did like, Mm. you know, education books for kids and library books. And I was in the editorial side. I was doing editing, copy editing, learning how the business works. And there was this office where the designers were. And I was friends with those guys a little bit and sort of thought they were having more fun than we were having. And then one thing led to another. And I moved to Boston and got this job at David Godin, which was a small press where his interest and and the sort of emphasis of of his practice was really gorgeous production. So he was having books printed at Steinauer Press and mm. they were letterpress and he had his own barn with, with Vander Cooks and he made, even the business manager had to be able to differentiate between, you know, Bodoni and Bembo. <laughs> and, um, and so I got this kind of crazy training, but I had been hired as a managing editor and, and just by through osmosis really being in the office, we started to learn more and more about the design side of things. And it was one great big room. The designer was right there next to the, editor next to the managing editor next to the production guy. So we were all in this business together. And, you know, really in the end, it was sort of like, oh my God, somebody left, somebody quit, somebody got fired. Can you design the catalog? You know, right, so I, right. I pulled out my, my complete ignorance and tried anyway. And then one day a Macintosh arrived in a big brown box and I opened it up. I was kind of, me and the production guy were the ones who sort of plugged it in and, and figured it out. And those were early days of Adobe. So we were getting, um, you know, uh, Carol Twombly's first edition of, I guess nice. it was Grandmother Paslan, I can't remember which one, and those gorgeous little booklets that they designed, yeah. you know, the floppy disk that the font yeah. came on. And so I just started figuring it out. And so by the time I applied to Yale, I had made some pretty ugly stuff, but I kind of knew what, what, what I was doing a little bit. And, um, and so once I got there, my mind was completely blown when I realized the graphic design was this other thing altogether. So, yeah, that's so, that's so funny. And my, my other question kind of around that, and, and maybe this is, is more about your time at Yale also is I am kind of constantly surprised by how many people I talk to for this podcast who are graphic designers who come from a literature background or, or people who have studied both graphic design and literature. And I'm always curious about the relationship between those two, and especially between kind of studying those two. Uh, and it seems like a lot of a lot of those people that I've talked to are Yale people. Um, I'm thinking of people like Rob Jean Petro and, and, and Michael Rock, specifically, mm-hmm. and I talked to them about that kind of relationship. Was that I guess I have like a, a couple questions around that. Was that was that a very kind of Sheila thing? I haven't talked to her yet. She's a dream mm-hmm. podcast guest. Um, oh, yeah. But was that so, was that something that she kind of fostered? And then also, did you kind of see connections between those? Especially saying you got into that program, kind of had your mind blown. Did, was it like, oh, this is kind of everything I've been doing all along, or this is not at all what I thought it was going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was Michael Rock who blew my mind. To be honest. 
my teacher. And Sounds about know, right. We're probably about the same age. If anything, he might just be like one or two years older. Hmm. Um, but he uh, he had this ability to kind of you know lasso these these complex texts he would give us in our seminars that were not necessarily from or about graphic design and tie them together to the work that we were doing. Sheila, what Sheila did that was amazing was just open the door for every single individual at the table to sort of figure out what their own personal story was. And she mm. was the one who sort of helped me even more looking back. I think I wasn't as clearly um, aware of this at the moment, but looking back, she was very generous in her signing to all of us that each of our own personal and individual stories counted. Oh, interesting. Much later in life, when I was working with colleagues, uh, developing projects or curriculum, and I remember more than once hearing faculty say, you know, oh, let's not make another story about your grandmother. Let's not make another project about your personal history. And I would always get this little sort of Sheila voice in my head saying, hold on a second. You know, those personal stories are everything. Like, that's what makes us who we are. So how to balance the sort of, you know, communicating in a universal quote, in quotation marks kind of way with the truth of your own stories is something that I've always been really interested in. So I definitely credit both of those guys, Michael and Sheila. And then also just dumb stuff. Like it happened to be the time when Emigre was kind of um, blowing up and still in the large format. And so I collected all of those and just thought like this, you know, just like this, 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 this is what I love. And that moment where I was seeing language, typography, form, meaning discourse, you know, argument come together on paper in these wacky forms mm-hmm. was just like so, so satisfying. And were you still, I, I want to connect this to, to teaching because you've, you've brought up a couple of things about, about teaching already. Um, were, were you still thinking I'm going to be a professor? Was that, that part of your life still, uh, still there? Or were you thinking I'm going to be a graphic designer and I'm on this, this new path now? I mean, that's a very good question because as, as you asked it, I was thinking, wow, I, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that I never lost sight of wanting to be a professor, but I had dumb reasons for the stuff I wanted to do. You know, I thought being a professor was good because you could have summer vacation. Uh, yeah. And and I think that's still, like, I'm starting to realize now, like, yeah, that's what's kept us all sane, you know, or giving us time to have a, an intellectual practice. Yeah. Um, but I think that... I sort of assumed once I was in grad school for graphic design that I was going to be a graphic designer. Sure. Mm. Right. Yeah, I guess both. I think it was always both. And I'm, I'm very lucky to say I've gotten to do both. So um, I didn't know that I was going to stay as close to the world of books. I did think that once I left publishing mm. and went into graphic design grad school, I was going to come out the other side, you know, a broader based designer. Um, but I think my breadth has found its place in teaching and then my, my sort of refinement has found its place in expanding my book practice, my book design practice. Oh, can you talk more about that? That, that the, the, the breadth of your career expanded in teaching and then the refinement in practice? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's really fascinating. It, it feels like this kind of a, a loop, a continuum, an ice cream sandwich. I don't know, but there's always this kind of these combinations of the two things. I'll start with the, the refinement issue. I, I, I have never been able to shake my complete obsession with pure typography, too. <laughs> but while I love the emigre stuff and I love the wacky 1990s, I can still sit down and make a book and get more happy just like, you know, refining rags and, right. and the type really sing on the page. At the same time that I want to 
you know, evoke the spirit of the content and make it contemporary if it needs to be contemporary or really mess around with the materials if I have any freedom, which I rarely do because the budgets are always so tight. But you know, all that stuff is, um, it's like somebody who's really good at knitting or building stone walls. You know, you just love the craft of it. So yeah. that's happening on one side. You know, during my sabbatical, I started a bunch of other um, sort of art practice things that we can talk about later yeah. maybe. Yeah, but, yeah. But then, so like book design's always been a thing. I have shelves groaning with books that I've designed. I've done a lot of stuff for the Met, for the MFA in Boston, for um, Tufts Gallery, for Godin still. Um, and then the teaching is this other place. The teaching is where my liberal arts brain can live. Mm. And I've, I'm lucky to be absorbent enough and wide awake enough and elastic enough, you know, even in my mid-50s, which is where I am now, to... Um, to be able to see what the students are surrounded with and what they're concerned with and what they want to do. And while I may not ever grow up to be a great coder, I've, you know, I've actually taken a, <laughs> uh, you know, a few classes in HTML and I can hack my cargo site. And I, you know, I, sort of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, I know how to inspect elements and there's something very poetic about all that, but mm -hmm. But the, so the digital tools, the platforms, the, the political concerns, the social concerns, the aesthetic concerns of students continues to be of great interest to me. And I'm and I most of all just love if I can in any way help shape them to be good humans. Um, I'm never bored. I always try to wake them up. And I like the performative aspect of teaching. And so it's yeah. messy, and it's human and it's dramatic and it's you just have to be so stretchy you know, like a big rubber band to be a teacher, I think, in this day and age, because you've got to include so many things. Yeah, it's so interesting. And the reason I asked about the kind of the, the breadth of, of teaching and the refinement of practice is that's kind of something that I've been thinking about over the last mm -hmm. year, just for myself. Um, and so, so I'm sorry about making this about me for the next yeah. five minutes or so. Um, conversation. But I've always... I was always interested in teaching also. And I remember like very clearly my, I think it was my sophomore year of college, my advisor, who was also the head of the design department uh, in a meeting for his, for something, for scheduling classes or something. I was in his office and he just like looked at me kind of offhanded comment. It was just like, well, you know, you're going to teach someday, right? And I just kind of like filed that away and was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, you know, I, I'd like to do that sometime. Um, and I, I always kind of wanted to do that. Um, and then over the last four or five years, I've started teaching and uh, each year I'm teaching like more and more. And then the, the, the actual kind of design side, the like client work is less and less. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have been like wrestling with that lately of, you know, which one of these am I kind of fully committing to? Am I just kind of stretching myself too thin? And I kind of realized, well, even if the practice, even if I was like doing more client work, I wouldn't want to give up the teaching. Yeah. And I think I had always kind of historically put so much into the practice side that all of these things that I'm interested in, both the, the, the visual side and the intellectual side has to go into the stuff that I'm doing for clients. And that teaching has kind of freed that a little bit for me, where I can just yeah. kind of like make stuff that just looks cool now. And then I can use that other side of my brain in 
teaching and that teaching is actually where everything happens. And then the, the client work can just be this other thing. You know what That's I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, I think you're seeing the, the side of you that clearly is drawn to the, the relational aspect of teaching that, you, you know, you're not up there professing at a podium. You're in here like working with humans in mm-hmm. a, in a way i'm sure of it yeah. i haven't seen you teach but i i'm getting to know you a little bit i think that's probably true um and that beautiful sort of human connection is is a really important practice in and of itself and we sometimes you know don't give that enough mention mm-hmm. that teaching is part of our practice it is part of how we stay real and stay in touch with people right and design is nothing if not you know a sort of a vehicle for for many different ways of communicating and connecting with people and so, you know, that's not to say if you're a 100% designer making lots of cool things that you're not connecting to people, but it just means that you're allowed to sort of underscore that part of your practice as a teacher and put that right alongside the other thing and, and say it's all okay. Yeah. All yeah, yeah. I've talked to a bunch of RISD faculty, and I think most of my conversation with John Caserta was talking about the the RISD curriculum that, that you all kind mm-hmm. of restructured a couple of years ago. Um, but now hearing the way that you talk about it, my, my conversation with John was very much kind of about, um, setting up the, the that curriculum, but hearing you talk about it and talk about kind of the, the, the people side and the human side and talking about learning from Sheila, the importance of kind of bringing yourself to the classroom and the, these personal stories that seems very connected to what you're trying to do at RISD. How does that, how did that kind of come about? As a, as not just a, um, this is a good thing to do, but we should actually build our curriculum around this. You know, it's now, let's see, 2014 was when it started. So it's five years or so that we've been doing it. And um, just briefly, the, the it that we're doing is just this core course that runs through the four semesters of sophomore and junior year, um, DS1, 2, 3, and 4. And the the genius of the structure, and this is where, you know, John, John and I are, are, are good buddies and we're very different. His brain is very systematic, extremely yeah. cool, very orderly. He can really make things happen. And I think that, you know, our colleagues would probably all say that that was true. Like he's the guy who, you know, knocks down the walls and makes the gorgeous new building for, for our, our design space. Mm-hmm. I'm the person who's going to, you know, come in and kind of look everybody deep in their eyes and find out what they're feeling and what's going on. And we are. My interest is in the sort of, you know, maybe it's anthropological. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we, we're a good team. And in fact, our new faculty, we have a fantastic new faculty this year. I'm so excited. Um, and it's just like stretching and stretching as people have retired and people have left. We've just now got this incredibly vibrant and really crazy mixed up group of people, which is lovely. But anyway... Yeah. Uh, so, so the main thing is that John's genius allowed for this structure to mean that, you know, there's five sections. We always have about somewhere between 60 and 70 sophomores. So we break that up into about five sections and each teacher leads a section, but all the teachers work together to create the units. And so a unit of study is always prompted with a question. And so the question is presented by all the teachers together. Usually one person kind of leads it and does a little talk. And then everybody goes off into their sections with their section leaders and, and investigates that question. And what I love about this is that it doesn't matter who is on sabbatical, who's retired, who's coming in brand new. You're always working with a team. And so you're always supported. Mm. And I love that 
in, in, in its ideal form, it's perfect. In its reality, by the time the students are at their second, third semester of questions, they're starting to roll their eyes about, oh my God, here we go with the questions, you know? Right. So we do have to sort of look at it now and think about where we might make some adjustments. But I think the, the main sort of focus is that the, the early semester is about sort of an intro to the field. As we build, they learn to do sort of concept and synthesis. By the third semester, they're starting to ex- be more expressive, thinking about politics, voice, activism. And then by the fourth semester, they're supposed to be thinking more about practice and the profession. And all of this needs some refinement, but um, but in, in structure, it allows us to do so many things because we're not tied to the sort of, you know, the previous model where there were courses that had names like Making Meaning, which was a terrific class. I wrote about that in that article yeah. in um, the RISD book. Um, but, you know, that class was called that class and had the same teachers in it for 15 years. And that starts to get really, you know, kind of um, static, mm, static, mm-hmm. right? Where stasis had set in. Um, and so what this means is that every every semester that it's taught, DS1 starts with a new crew of people. Maybe it's the same ones, maybe a few different people. And they rewrite the units based on what's happening in the world and what people are interested in. And then the teachers get to teach a little bit to what they're interested in or what their expertise in. So if, if somebody comes in and does something in programming, they might be the only programmer among the faculty, but they'll still set a project that's to their, to their specifications and their interests. And then we get, um, you know, help in lots of different ways, working out how the different teachers are going to teach to that. Um, so it's really collegial. And, and when it works, it's really a beautiful thing. I have a question about that, that this is another kind of selfish question that I've just been thinking about generally. And I don't, really have the right words yet to articulate the, the the only word I can think of is 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 balance and that's not exactly what I mean but mm-hmm. I've found that the classes that I enjoy the most teaching and the classes where I feel like the students seem like they're getting the most or um you know doing more interesting things are the classes yeah. that I kind of selfishly make about the things that I'm interested in or the questions that I have. And right. I, I I get that and that makes sense. But I always wonder, I, I, I have this kind of fear of just turning my students into mini Jarrett's. <laughs> and like, I don't want them to have the same questions that I have or to just do the same things that I do or, or make the same kind of work that I make. And I'm always wondering about that kind of, again, I don't know the exact word. I keep saying balance, but I don't think that's quite right of setting up a structure where I can ask the questions that I'm interested in, but it's also about students asking the questions that they're interested in. And then going back to what you were saying earlier, bringing their stories and their lives and their interests in how does in, in the, the, the system that you've set up, what is that kind of, uh, I don't know, reciprocity, I guess, between faculty interests and student interests? It's a really good question. And, and it's one that is, is terribly important to sort out because I think it can, it can backfire if it's too much about the faculty interests. There's no yeah. question. You know, on the other hand, if you think about, um, any sort of academic setting, let's say a Brown university course, you know, it, you're not going to, you're not going to do like a, you know, a history of, of, um, 
I don't know, Chinese literature, for example, if the teacher teaching it isn't like 100% on that, you right, know? Right. <laughs> it just wouldn't be possible. So the idea that you would teach something you don't know or that you're not interested in just seems foolhardy. To right, me. right. So just starting with that as kind of a, a point. But so for, let me give you an example of some of the questions we ask in this curriculum. I've, I've been teaching the third semester DS3 now for a few years. Um, and one of my great interests is the relationship between a person and a place. Mm. Um, you know, a long time ago, I read Lucy Lepard's incredible book called The Lure of the Local. And mm. while she's an art critic of various kinds, one of her great interests has always been this kind of relationship between the local, the community and what they do visually to both identify themselves, to mark place, to create a sense of connection and, and authenticity. Anyway, she's one of my great heroes. Um, so having studied her for a while, I was really interested in, in environmental graphic design, less in terms of like navigating uh, wayfinding, signage and stuff like that, and more about how you feel when you enter a space or a place and how a space or a place can read. And I've done a ton of research on memorial design, particularly in Berlin, mm -hmm. around the Holocaust and stuff like that. So one of my questions for this assignment is how can you create narrative experiences that connect people to place mm -hmm. using the tools of maps, mapping, data gathering, and design? So what I've done there is I've said, you know, we're going to go and investigate a site. And each student is encouraged to choose their own site. And so while it has to be a real site in a real place where you can stand that you can get to, um, near where you live and it can't be in your memory and it can't be a website. Mm -hmm. um, they then have to go through a numerous steps of investigating it. And once they've got all this material from gathering data, from essentially mapping it as a verb that I, uh, I borrow that term from Peter Hall yeah. and Janet Abrams in their fantastic book. Um, so the process of mapping is collecting what interests you in that place. And obviously when you collect something, you also, don't collect something and there are things that are excluded. So that starts to point to what you're magnetized toward and what you're interested in. So each student comes back with a site, a collection of stuff, ideas, forms, um, evidence of who, who the, the sort of walkers are who move through the space. And then they start to build uh, a 2D version of kind of just replicating some of the behaviors and things that they've noted there. And then they have to go to a next phase of starting to tell a narrative about that site. So they can do that however they want to. We also go and sit right. and write sites for a little while. So everybody is sort of like aware of senses and breezes and noises and things. And they can go down a totally poetic route if they want to, um, which becomes very personal. Mm -hmm. Like I happen to be running from lamppost to lamppost because I'm scared of the dark when I walk through the part of town. So I'm going to map the lampposts. And you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. so... It, Try to help them figure out a way to, to make it of interest to them. And this one is one of the more practical assignments. Some of them get even a little more sort of um, open and a little bit more experimental or more personal. Something else I just wanted to mention about teaching, um, something that's become clearer and clearer, especially in the last, I'm going to say the Trump years, mm -hmm. really, is the incredible necessity of like, while we understand graphic design as a, a space of, you know, in some extent, to some extent, training. Um, it has become more important to me than ever to make sure it's a, it's a space of, of teaching and learning compassionately. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm teaching graphic design through graphic design, and because we have this generous field that's so big and so open, um, I have started to talk about this idea of compassionate teaching and 
this combines, um, you know, my interests in political activism and particularly for me anyway, a feminist angle on how we view um, the design world and the design industry. But in the classroom, it really comes down to listening and um, finding new ways to perform critique and finding ways in which everybody feels included. And, you know, that situation where you have two or three terrific You know, vocal kids in the class who feel really confident and a whole bunch of kids who don't like that. I used to be like, okay, I'll have three kids who talk and everybody else will be quiet. And now I don't let that go anymore. Now, instead of insisting that everybody talks, which also doesn't work because for some people, it's just not who they are. I'm finding newer ways to engage silent critique using Slack, using Google Mm. Docs changing it up every week so that we can meet in smaller groups and have really different ways of engaging our actual bodies and our voices so that everybody feels like they're, they're learning. And so that's just something I really wanted to say about how, how like it's exciting to keep changing as a teacher. And this has been, um, you know, a slope kind of leading toward this moment where it became very evident that we had to change quite quickly. You're asking these questions in the classroom, and maybe this will connect to to the sabbatical a little bit too. Um, and your website is an interesting mix of what I'm going to call kind of <laughs> traditional client work and yeah. very personal projects. And I'm I'm wondering about the relationship or the overlap between those three things. Kind of what's happening in the classroom and the the stuff that you're asking there. And, and these kind of projects and prompts that you're giving to your students, this work that you're kind of doing for yourself or coming out of your own personal experience, and then this work that you're doing for clients that are, you know, like you said earlier, the, the books and, and things like that. Do those, it's kind of an updated question to when I was asking about when you were studying all this stuff in undergrad, what's the relationship between all of those or how do those influence each other or, or kind of start to connect with each other? It's, it's probably too easy, too lazy of an answer to say <laughs> this, but when I was in school with, um, I was very lucky to have studied under Dan Friedman. Mm, yeah. Um, Dan, Dan Friedman's life was cut very short in the nineties. Um, he died, you know, way too young, but one of the things he said to us was celebrate schizophrenia, celebrate the ability to be interested in and do many kinds mm, of things. Mm. And, um, and so I've, I have held that advice so tightly because I just would die if I was just doing one thing. And I, I feel so happy and blessed to have found a place where, um, it's perfectly legitimate to, to do this, you know, book for the Metropolitan Museum, which has nothing but white canvas and a, and a Lucio Fontana slice down the center. And then to go make my crazy newspaper club stuff about poetry and mushrooms. Right. Um, and, and I think it's, uh, I think it's because we are really complex beings and we're living in the most upside down world anyone has ever seen. So we are all kind of grasping for how we make sense of it, yeah. you know, yeah. and I think that the, the, the joy of finding a place of beauty, whether that's whether you like to cook or whether you're an esthete and you just want to look at certain things or whether you're a collector of small white rocks or whatever you do is your way of making sense of this crazy world. Yeah. And then, and then in the sort of, um, in the design practice, you're kind of making sense again in another way, but with a very particular client in mind or a very particular goal. 
So that the delight of being able to tell somebody else's story for them, if it's even if it's as simple as making a, a, a catalog for an exhibition, um, and then being able to go back and walk in the woods and collect mushrooms and come home and make a spore print with it, that's that's its own kind of celebration of the mm. sense of the natural world that that gives everybody who involves themselves in nature, I do believe this, a kind of a place of peace and and meditation and the ability to kind of make sense of things um, and remember the world that we're living in, you know, not to be corny about it, but it's kind of true. Um, so, so there is a kind of sense to it. And, and also graphic design is such a generous field. It's this massive umbrella under which we can do everything from like serious critical theory and talking about how we're communicating to one another as humans in this world. Yeah to the politics of design, to, you know, making a, a container for, for your poetry. Yeah. All, all of that and more. Yeah. I love that. I, it actually like makes me feel better about asking the question that I was going to, I was trying to figure out a way to ask you before. Um, and I, I don't, I hope this isn't too reductive or not interesting, but I'm, I'm I want to talk a little bit about process and the idea of kind of process and working itself. Um, and and I'm I'm curious how you know walking through a forest and collecting mushrooms to make a, a spore print, or when you're on sabbatical, and it seems like at least from what I've been able to see from from your sabbatical that there was a lot of writing that was happening, and then mm -hmm. you know you're designing a book for a client. How, do, is the process different? Is the way of working and thinking different between all of those? Or or have you kind of developed a way to kind of, whatever the output is, um, there's some similarities between them? You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think romantically, I want to say there are similarities, but I think realistically, there are times when they're really, really different. Okay. And, okay. you know, part of it is that sort of, you know, yeah, and I wonder if you're the same as me. Like when you're sitting down to do some typography, whether it's a 300-page book or whatever, you get pretty like um, engaged and in detail-oriented and kind of obsessive about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it gets very your focus gets pretty narrow. Yeah. You know, sometimes so narrow that you actually need somebody to come bonk you on the head. <laughs> yeah. When you go outward into the world and you're and you're trying to not just look at things carefully but connect the things that you're seeing, you have to have a really different mindset. And I kind of think that there are two different sorts of calisthenics that mm. that the, the sort of obsessive nature of of staring at a computer screen and designing something um, could be sort of unhealthy if you don't also have another place where your brain can kind of expand. Mm. Um, you know, the story of the mushrooms. Can I tell you the story of the mushrooms yeah, a little bit? Yeah, go for it. Everybody laughs at this, but it's but it is kind of fascinating how this has led from one thing to another. And I think this thing about paying attention to how one thing leads to another is super important yeah. for designers. Um, so, like my sabbatical had happened, um, I was like in the very first month. I hadn't gone on any of my residencies yet, and a friend of mine called me up and said, "I'm buying a mushroom class for my husband for his birthday. Do you want to come?" And I had never given mushrooms a thought seriously. Like I like to eat them, okay, you know, yeah. whatever. I hadn't really thought about it. So I went to this class and the guy was teaching us all, of course, about identifying them and finding them and eating them. It was nothing about art specifically. And then at the very, very end, he showed one more slide, which was a spore print. And he said, oh yeah, some mushroom hunters also like to cultivate their own mushrooms. And so they make these prints in order to collect the spores. 
And then he closed this, his laptop and that was the end of that. And I went home thinking like, wow, I wonder if anybody has ever done this as an art form. And I think I posted something on Instagram and an old friend of mine that I'd gone to college with pointed out one artist she knew of who, who was doing this. And I really couldn't find anybody else who was doing it in a way that interested me except this one guy. And I can't, I can't remember his name now. But I think he was ordering his mushrooms from, from China and getting these really massive exotic mushrooms that made incredible prints. And I was like, wait a minute. I think that the thing is, is that walking and looking for them becomes its own art form too. So first I just started walking and I was started walking with intention. And this phrase walking with intention started to click for me as a metaphor for so many things. Um, then I'm walking along the Seekonk River here in Providence, having also, by the way, started paying attention to my own ancestry during this time of sabbatical. This is, I think, I'm starting to think this is like an addiction for people who are about my age. <laughs> you start opening up Ancestry.com, figuring out your oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. story. And I had learned that I had all of these relations way back when who had, um, who had been here in the very early days. Mm. I mean, just let's name it. White English settlers mm -hmm. who did very bad things were, were my ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so walking in these woods where, where, where Narragansett tribes had lived, where then white colonists had arrived. And, and um, you know, I suppose that there's a mythology that they there were some people who were nice and there were some people who tried to do the right thing. But that's pretty much debunked. Um, yeah. We all know. Um, but so here I am looking at mushrooms and I start thinking about my history, about indigenous tribes, about land and about the sort of almost visualizing what it would be like to slice through the earth deep enough to get to some true stories about mm. time and place. And so the spore printing became this weird sort of evidentiary act that I was doing as I was trying to reconcile my own identity. So it's weird. They don't look like they're anything to do with my identity, but I was starting to print on maps, on onto um, textures that I was creating that were sort of evidence of nodes in place. And, um, and then I started finding like maps from the 17th century and old engravings of, of massacres of villages and was printing on those. So it, it didn't go anywhere particular, but it was this just active thing to do while I was reading and thinking and absorbing new information, new histories. So I'm wandering a little, but, but this is to sort of say that the, the strange activities that can happen if you keep your brain super wide open yeah. are, you know, so fruitful. And if you're only sitting there staring at a screen and, and kerning type, then that's just bonkers, Yeah, you know, Yeah. or it will drive you bonkers, which I think it did drive me bonkers. And, you know, I would like... The, uh, sabbaticals every seven years. So for seven years, I'm like teaching, 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 prepping slides, prepping things, then being department head, and then rushing home and designing a massive book for a museum. You know, I was tired. So to have this year of of introspection was just so amazing. I want to talk a little bit about the sabbatical. And you had this time, um, and you know, you're kind of talking about like you know being able to to spend time to just kind of think and and wander. And like I, I mentioned earlier, it seemed like a lot of what you were doing was also you were doing a lot of writing. And I'm, I'm curious about, about that time and what kind of came out of that time and how writing has found a way to be a part of your practice also. And just kind of, you know, what, what was that like and what were you kind of working on and thinking about? I don't know how many of the listeners here know about Design Inquiry, which is an organization 
um, sort of loosely housed in Portland, Maine, because one of the founders, Margot Halverson, um, lives there and teaches at Maine College of Art. But I think it was Margot, a Dutch designer called Mella Hammer, Peter Hall, who now teaches, I think, at Central St. Martin's in England, and... Um, oh, I'm probably forgetting one or two people, sort of started this organization 10 or 15 years ago. Um, originally, it was kind of a series of summer classes in Portland in the school buildings, and then they decided they wanted something more communal. In fact, they had this lovely idea about how the best conversations happen sort of, you know, in the hallway after dinner or by the water cooler, right. and how could they get a place where those were the conversations we were having all the time. So they started this thing in Vinyl Haven, which is an island off the coast of Maine, um, and it's hard to get to, and you have to take a ferry, and then you stay in some creepy old, often haunted farmhouse, and it's usually really mosquito-y, and there's this whole kind of discomfort to getting there and being there, and then communing with 20 or 25 people, cooking together, making work together, presenting work. And I've done this residency several times, but I decided to bracket my sabbatical with one at the beginning in June, and then at the very end of my sabbatical, I did another mm. one in the last just last June. And I was so lucky that this, it just happened to line up that the the theme, because I have a new theme for each, for each design inquiry, the theme of this past 2018 was rewrite was the mm. title. And it was like, you know, re colon write. And so it was about writing, but it was also about sort of the metaphor itself of rewriting, revisiting, redoing, rethinking. Um, and one of the people who they invited, a woman named Holly Willis, um, who is a dean at University of Southern California, I hope I'm getting that right, um, was, is a terrific writer and is a terrific teacher of writing. And so just kind of by chance, everybody was doing little presentations. Holly sort of stepped up and said, you know, I have a few writing prompts we could, we could do. Mm. And she got us all going. And, you know, I'll never forget sitting on this porch and the sun is shining down and we're looking out at this sort of rocky coast. And she's giving us this wacky writing prompt that was kind of in pieces where it just says like, okay, list three things like, a, you know, a bed you slept in that wasn't your own. Um, what was in the room in the bed, in the room where the bed was that you slept in that wasn't your own? And these little mm. sort of um, chunks of kind of building. And then she would give some kind of advice and say, okay, for half an hour now, see if you can piece all this together into a coherent form, but you have to emphasize, you know, X. I don't remember exactly. But by the time that one exercise was over, I was like, oh, my God, I am so happy. This is a thing that I've been wanting to do for mm -hmm. so long. I've been struggling with, you know, much more sort of prosaic writing, the kind of stuff that you read in the, in the RISD book. And this is much more what I want to do because it was raw and it's sort of everybody kind of dove into personal spaces because when you're sitting there on a porch and somebody suddenly says, go, yeah. the only thing you really have is your own inside of your own head. So anyway, Design Inquiry um, and the Rewrite thing launched this group of people who, even after the inquiry was over, they last a week. Everybody wanted to get together. And so once a month, we would Skype. Um, mm -hmm. Hollywood prompts. We would write. We would deliver them to each other. And then we would discuss. Oh, wow. So it really became a writing group. And the, and the folks who stayed with it really, um, I think, grew immensely. And we're going we're gonna to probably pick it up again. So one of the publications I made over my sabbatical was a container for all the things I wrote through that year of, of writing together with that group. Um, and then the design inquiry on the, on the tail end of my sabbatical was uh, a revisitation. We decided we kind of wanted to invite the same people back mm. 
And just as a little shout out to Design Inquiry, they are having an exhibition and a series of events in Portland starting October 3rd or 4th um, called Futurespective. And because they've been so busy preparing for this show, they weren't going to do a design inquiry at all this past June. Mm. They realized they could probably host one that was sort of much smaller and that invited back the people from the previous year because it had been particularly successful. And so this DI was only 10 people and very focused on those same folks who had been in the writing one. Um, and so the, the theme there was view askew <laughs> and, uh, there was a lot of work made and presentations made that had to do with sort of how something got turned on its head or seen in a new way. And, and uh, I ended up making a publication for that, for one of the prompts I did there. I, I had everybody do a scavenger hunt about trying to understand the place where we oh, were. Nice. Um, it was nice. But anyway, so those two things bracketed the sabbatical. And then within the center of the sabbatical was was these many, many months of, of um, understanding that I was now in a, in a space where I could freely write as uh, as my creative sort of practice. Right. Um, and then doing a lot of reading. I think the books that I read that stuck with me the most were um, was An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Mm by Robin Dunbar-Ortiz. And what she does in her book is to pretty much dispel any of the myths that Americans have have safely stayed connected to about our relationship with um, Native Indigenous peoples yeah. when settlers when arrived here. And then another book I read was called um, The Barbarous Years by a Harvard historian whose name I don't remember, but I listened to it because it was so dense. I couldn't, <sighs> I couldn't quite... And he just kind of talked about the way in which the 17th century especially was just barbarous everywhere and that humans uh, ideas about punishment and about uh, the value of human life and the, and the sort of the ability to inflict pain, the kind of part of culture. Like it was just a fascinating read to kind of put into context where we are today. Oh, interesting. Um, and it actually was weirdly a positive in the sense that I feel like we had actually made a lot of progress, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but as we continue to try to, you know, dispense with some of the mythologies, it's good to remember that people were really brutal to each other yeah. in, every, in every part of the universe for many, many hundreds of years. Yeah. I'm like halfway through the, um, that special New York times magazine, 1619 yeah. project. And it's the same, <laughs> same kind of idea. Do you also listen to the, uh, the daily? I do. I haven't listened to the 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 1619 podcast yet but i've heard yeah. it's good it's a very good listen the other book i would recommend is um something else that i read while i was on sabbatical was uh a fictional book but sort of based in in history or based in the present tommy orange um the book is called there there oh, i don't know that. i've never heard of that and He's a very young writer from california who i think is uh part arapaho and I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm not going to say, but he's a, a blend of two native tribes. And um, this book, There, There, is just spectacular as a way of kind of seeing what it's like today in 2019 mm. um, in an urban context, uh, what it feels like to be part of a Native American community. I'm very interested. You know, you have this this time where you have all this space and you know, you can kind of reflect and work on these things that are important to you. And now you're back kind of in it. Mm -hmm. How, how do you see that time 
changing your work going forward, the time from the, the work from the sabbatical and kind of that space, now that you're back teaching back from sabbatical, back to leading the program, back to client work. And are there things from that that you're wanting to kind of incorporate into, into the work? Um, I think that's a terrific question. I, you know, I, I think like many people, we, we wrestle with our insecurity demons <laughs> and one of the things that I feel like I was able to grapple with a little bit over this year was recognizing permission for myself to do my own work mm. and that my own work didn't have to look like anybody else's and it didn't have to check any boxes, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think before that, I've been more like, oh God, I should be, you know, I, I intended to learn more processing and I, intended <laughs> to, you know, take some more Coursera classes and, and, um, and while I didn't do as much of that as I wanted to, although I did teach my, myself glyphs now, so now I can design typefaces, um, mostly I gave myself permission to relax a little bit about who I am. Mm. And I think everybody needs that permission, whether you're in your 20s or whether you're in your 70s or 80s, mm -hmm. you know? So I think bringing that awareness into the classroom is an, yet another sort of layer to my desire to try and meet kids where they yeah. are and, and, and be a compassionate uh, teacher and listener, but also a compassionate colleague. And this is something that I think is really important. Um, you know, every, we have every age of faculty represented among our faculty. I think we have 12 full-time, but something like, you know, 20 to 30 part-timers. Um, and some of these people have bring different skills. So for example, one of our new faculty is really, really interested in machine learning and in the sort of theorizing of the post-human. Mm. Um, and while she and I may not have the exact same interests or skills, I've my year of sabbatical, I think, has given me the sort of energy and the clarity and the space in my mind to really listen deeply to her as a new faculty saying like, hey, you know, let's let's have a machine learning class. Yeah. Let's talk about where this is why this is important. And P.S. Let's invite some scientists to come and talk with us, and let's talk about design's relationship to science. I might not have had the clarity to be able to really listen deeply to her if I was as tired as I was a year ago. <laughs> yeah. And then meanwhile, I have older faculty who are um, who are so engaged as teachers, but who are maybe less agile now with the tools and platforms that we use in mm. teaching. So if somebody's not super comfortable with Google Docs, I'm perfectly happy to copy and paste it into an email and send it. And, you know, again, that sort of trying to be generous to meet people where they are, you can't just do that with your students. You also have to do it with everybody around yeah. you. And, you know, it's easy to say, like, I'm still yelling at my kids, but my own children, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> once I come to work and I'm behaving myself, I feel like, I do feel like the sabbatical was a time where I, I got my bearings about, about really what kind of a teacher I wanted to be right now yeah. in this time. And I work closely with Paul Solelis, who is right now um, the head of the grad program for a short time. Bethany Johns is the head, but she's away for a little bit on oh. sabbatical. And um, Paul and I talk a lot about this idea of, of meeting people where they are and recognizing everything that they bring to the table as um, a benefit yeah. to the conversation and then seeing how we help them move forward. Yeah. I love that. That's such a, it's, it's such a nice, um, nice way to just kind of live in the world and, and a, a really kind of inspiring yeah. way to kind of wrap this up also. It probably sounds a little no. too, you know, a little too 
soft and too nice, and I should probably be much more edgy about everything. But I, I tell you, I've done that. And no, you know, in the end, it's just us. Yeah. Here. No, I think you're right. I, I, I don't think it comes across as, as too nice at all. I actually really like <laughs> it and, and find it really um, inspiring. And a, as I found this whole conversation, I feel like this was such a, a nice conversation that has helped me kind of figure out a lot of things that I was thinking about recently also. So thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. I enjoyed this so much. You're very welcome. This episode was recorded on September 7th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>